0: So good, isn't it, to be able to come together this Sunday afternoon to appreciate the rich blessing that's ours together in the way that we are. It was already prayed tonight and thanksgiving for one another and for this congregation and for all every member that's able to be associated and to assemble with us. And certainly we are indeed so thankful. As you perhaps have already noticed in the bulletin as well as uh, other, other ways, we've come to another question and answer session tonight. This is our eighth one this year. I uh, perhaps am planning one more before our year comes to a, cl- a conclusion, so it will be a total of nine if that be true. But at any rate, I did want to begin by expressing a word of appreciation to everybody that's participated, putting questions in the box back there. Because uh, after all, you're picking the subjects on, on these particular nights, and I'm hopeful it's helpful. And I know that as we study together the Word of God, it's always bound to be an encouragement when you and I rightly divide it and apply what it has to say to us. With that said, the opening slide tonight is an introductory one, and it really brings us to appreciate some of what uh, was mentioned a moment ago. In Luke chapter 2, verse 46, Cale just read that just a few minutes ago, and there Jesus is, was at the age of twelve, And yet, as he was brought, of course, by his parents to the placement of Jerusalem, ultimately they inadvertently left him behind. But isn't it interesting? He was asking questions of the doctors of the law. Doesn't that highlight that here the young boy Jesus nonetheless appreciated a question, appreciated the kind of value in considering questions, and giving thought to the appropriate answers to them? We're going to try to do that tonight using the Word of God as our guide. And as we close that slide, may I say that we do this, of course, because we're convicted that there are answers in this book, and the answers are meaningful. And it's important for us to appreciate and to apply them. So I hope you have your Bible ready as we begin to look at these questions one by one tonight. The first question reads like this. Since it is the elders' responsibility to oversee the flock, shouldn't they know each member well and know why some members do not attend all services? If needed, shouldn't the elders do the discipline for members who are not faithful? A very good question, as all of them are. In fact, every question it seems that's been asked is so very well expressed, and that's also true of this one. I've put together a few thoughts to lead us through some considerations about what is raised in in this particular question, and we might well start like this. It's very important, it seems to me, to keep in mind that it is the wisdom of the Almighty God to put in place the reality of those men to lead His respective congregations. We call them elders but there are many New Testament words used to characterize those men. They're called bishops, they're called elders, they're called presbyters, they're called overseers, they're called shepherds. All of them are appropriately used words in description of elders, and this question has certainly brought us to consider very carefully one of the aspects of their responsibilities. You may notice in that lie, there's something very specifically asserted to all of us. Again, the position that these men occupy is a very important one to the point that the members of that congregation are commanded. I didn't say suggested. They're commanded to obey them. Hebrews 13, 17. To all of us, we're told, obey them that have the rule over you. And that means that these men, once they are placed into that position... It is incumbent upon that congregation then to dutifully obey and to submit to them. That'll, of course, be important as we look to the next item on that list. These men, of course, have qualifications that they are to satisfy before, of course, they should ever be considered as an elder. First Timothy chapter three, Titus chapter one list a fairly extensive number of things that these men are to possess characteristics that they embody in their life no wonder you appreciate that not only they but their wives also are given certain things characteristics which they're expected and which they should of course exhibit but all of that is suggestive of this the person who asked this question and as always i don't know who asked them i always do in fact encourage you make them anonymous. It specifically said, shouldn't these elders know each member well and why some members do not attend all the services? The answer is yes. Turn to Acts chapter 20 verse 28. And let's look at one of the statements made there with respect to the eldership. Acts chapter 20 verse number 28. On this occasion, the congregation at Ephesus, their elders had traveled to Miletus. And as they travel there, they of course met with, they were meeting with Paul. Verse number 28 reads like this, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. That verse begins by using these words, Take heed to yourselves. Those elders clearly have a serious responsibility to make sure their example is as it ought to be and that their direction in life is certainly proper and in accordance with the Word of God. But it's the next part of the verse that occupies our attention. It says, not only were they to take heed to themselves, but it says, to the flock. The elders are given a remarkable responsibility. They are watching for our souls. And as such... You might take note of what the word take heed means. I've tried to define it for us. It literally means to hold the mind to. As they consider each of the members of the congregation over which they rule, they are to thus strive to do those things that will help that individual to go to heaven, to help that individual be stronger in the faith to help that individual approach the various issues and matters of life, to hold the mind with respect to that individual. The question that had been asked of us, should the elders know the members? Well, yeah, you would be difficult to imagine a shepherd trying to lead sheep if the shepherd doesn't know the sheep. In the same way, of course, that Jesus is the chief shepherd, He has bequeathed to these gentlemen, the opportunity to lead that congregation. And as they know the various members and perhaps the issues or problems they face, they can offer the guidance, the counsel, the wisdom, and the insight and the vision that would help them to meet those problems. As you continue on that slide, however, I might suggest that really in that same light, each of us are commanded about something. So the elders are encouraged, in fact, asserted that they need to know the members. Each of us are commanded to know them. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11. Thus we should appreciate the task that's set before them. We should strive to hold up their hands and encourage them. It is a great work they do. It is fraught with many a sleepless night. Wondering how to address this problem. What decision would be in the best interest of the congregation? What should we do to address this particular matter that has been raised? Certainly we could say then Paul commanded the Thessalonian church to know its elders. May you and I take to heart some of these issues of knowledge, how that it goes each way, and maybe one final thing. The person had specifically mentioned... When there are members who do not attend the services, shouldn't the elders understand the reason why, if there is a reason? And surely the answer is yes. For if a person isn't attending the services, when that person's a member, they are sinning willfully, Hebrews 10, verses 25 and 26, and they're going to have to answer for that at the judgment. Certainly then, it would behoove the elders to know what it is that's taking place, After all, there could be reasonable circumstances that would prevent a person from attending. The elders certainly would wish to know that. But if it's just a choice on the part of this person not to come, there's a spiritual problem here. And that may only be the tip of the proverbial iceberg. There could be other things. No wonder the second part of the question, if needed, shouldn't the elders do the discipline for members who are not faithful? There's a part of that maybe we should add a few thoughts to. Discipline, as it's described in the Bible, isn't only for something the elders bring about. That would be something each of us could certainly have a part to play. May I say, if there's someone who is not here, and you recognize someone in here, maybe the elders, that's just not something they recognize that morning in the midst of other problems. Call them. It doesn't have to be the elder that calls. Call up this person. We missed you. Is there something we could do to help you? Is there something that's occurred that we might need to give you some assistance? If you discover that there's perhaps a greater problem involved, bring that to the teacher of the elders so that they, again, may well be able to help in the resolution of it too. I hope as we've considered that question, we're ready to close that slide. First Timothy 5 verse 17 had highlighted that as the elders lead, certainly if it does reach a point wherein there's church discipline involved, it's to be anticipated the elders will be the ones who lead that effort. But each and every person that's a member of that church must, if that person's going to please God, proceed along the attribute of that discipline. Church discipline is not just something the elders or the elders and the deacons do. It's a congregational approach. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18 describe it that way. And I think that we've at least addressed that question. Let's proceed to the next one. This next question also relates to the eldership, but the question's different. The question reads as follows Shouldn't elders be teaching in the absence of a minister? teaching Bible classes on a regular basis or at any time when needed as written in First Timothy chapter 3. Another great question. All of these certainly are vital and may well prompt in our appreciation. Several features for consideration. Let's begin our journey this time this way. The person who wrote the question made reference to First Timothy 3. Let me invite you to turn to that chapter and let's look at verse number 2. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse number 2 This chapter is of course that chapter that involves the qualifications of elders and verse number 1 and 2 those taken together read like this This is a true saying If a man desire the office of a bishop he desireth the good work A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Now that isn't the end of the sentence, but at least for the consideration of our study for the question, let's pause at that point. One of the qualifications for an elder is that this man must be apt to teach. That phrase, apt to teach, as you can tell, from the original language carries the thought of being skillful at teaching as well as having a tendency to do it. Skill as well as the discipline to carry it out, to be apt to teach. No wonder in that light it's easy to summarize and say then surely a man that's going to be an elder must be a capable teacher. Now, I would ask that you take careful note about some things that are said and some things that are not said. After all, you may notice that it would be entirely possible for a man to actually fulfill that duty without actually doing a lot of public teaching. Some men are more skilled at the public idea of teaching. Some are more skilled in private teaching. It is quite a skill to be able to one-on-one, to share the gospel with somebody and, in fact, to bring them to a point of appreciation about some of the great truths of the Word of God. Others may be more skilled in a public way at doing it. But certainly any man that is an elder will be skilled in knowledge with respect to the Word of God and have a a capability to share that and to teach it. That's, That's what this requirement is. No wonder in that light you may notice this particular thing that the elders must do. It's that verse we read just a moment ago in Acts chapter 20 verse 28. Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God. The elders are required, they are given a very strong responsibility to ensure that that flock is fed spiritually with appropriate nourishment that which will in fact motivate their spirit and soul in such a way that would be appropriate and right in the sight of God. Now, they may themselves carry out a lot of that teaching. They may have a paid preacher to help do it, or other individuals in the congregation. But certainly, they should be at least understood to be capable and also to be those who help to carry out that teaching responsibility to be apt to teach. You may notice that it says, apt to teach, not apt to assist others always in doing it. For that reason, you may note some of these things. It's exceedingly important then for a congregation to respect her elders in the capability that's theirs in regard to teaching. They need to respect that man, that he can teach, and that he'll stand strongly for the truth. Would you notice Titus chapter 1 in that light? In the opening chapter of Titus, again in consideration of elders, let me begin reading in verse number 9. Speaking of elders, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. So notice this elder at one time was taught, this man, and now he has become an elder. But it says he needs to hold fast that faithful word that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So that's suggestive of He is the one that is actually taking part in this teaching. He is the one that is in fact a vital participant in that activity. Because verse number 10, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. So you'll notice there were others teaching what was false, but these elders are equipped with knowledge, and they, in fact, have the desire and the nerve and the love to actually teach these things and help set things on the correct and proper course before God. As we journey forward then on that slide, in 1 Peter chapter 5, this idea is mentioned in the following way. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse number 1 "'The elders which are among you I exhort, "'who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, "'and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. "'Feed the flock of God which is among you, "'taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, "'not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind, "'neither as being lords over God's heritage, "'but being in samples to the flock.'" Now again, that phrase, to feed the church of God, so certainly they are in a position to be required by God to ensure that the congregation is being properly fed. But Titus's words seem to suggest they'll have at least some role to play in directly making sure that's carried out themselves. So at the bottom, it does seem then it would be entirely wise for an eldership to ensure that they are perceived in their own congregation as being those who will participate and who can carry out the public attribute of teaching. As you and I give thought to the blessing attached to that, it's an honorable thing then to to help bring the knowledge of the Word of God to other people and a congregation should see that kind of thing so beautifully represented in the lives of her eldership. Question number three takes us to a different consideration. This one has to do with the Lord's Supper. A very short question, but certainly a very interesting one. Would it be wrong to have a picture of Jesus on the cross showing during the taking of the Lord's Supper? It certainly would be a good reminder of what He did for us. Can you perhaps picture the question? It's been asked, would it be an inappropriate thing if, for instance, during our taking of the Lord's Supper, if perhaps on the PowerPoint we had a display a picture showing perhaps the crucifixion or something related to it? Let's see if we can answer some thoughts relative to that question and do so beginning there at the top. It would be entirely right to keep in mind... The Lord's Supper is a critical juncture of reflection, a critical juncture of serious reflection on what it was that took place. I say that because that's what Paul said. To that person who does not discern the body and blood of the Lord, you're eating and drinking damnation to your soul. If our mind is wandering during the Lord's Supper, we're sinning. If during the Lord's Supper, our mind is elsewhere, no matter where else, but elsewhere. We are making a serious mistake. This person has asked a very good question then, and it helped keep us focused. Would it be a wrong thing to have an image, a picture perhaps of a crucified Christ? You'll notice on that slide, it would not at all be wrong as far as I can tell from the Word of God. I would only assert the following. And of course, what I'm now about to say will have to be left to the judgment of our elders though it wouldn't technically be in any way wrong as far as I can tell. One thing to keep in mind would be these ideas. We know how serious a time of contemplation and reflection that it ought to be. And I know many individuals close your eyes and bow your head because it gives you the opportunity to solely remove from yourself the distractions of what else may be taking place in the auditorium and to think solely and exclusively about what it was that took place at Calvary. If we were to display a picture of, say, the crucified Christ or something like that, though it wouldn't be wrong, we might now add to each individual, we might have another challenge. I might feel as though it's expected of me to be looking at that. But if I do that, I might be distracted by the other things, perhaps youngsters or children or other things taking place in the auditorium. I would say... Even if it was displayed, it would not be a necessary thing to feel as if you had to look at it. So we might want to keep that in mind, certainly. In addition, if our elders were to, in their judgment, appreciate it, it would not be wrong. In fact, it would be worthwhile to do it. We'd honor their decision. And to those who would find that beneficial, you could intently look upon it and perhaps easily remember what it was that took place at Golgotha. Maybe one final thing on that slide. We would certainly want to be careful in what image were selected to to be displayed. You know, some images can bring the appreciation of Christ, but can almost do so in such a way that it can bring other tangential thoughts to mind, and certainly that would never want to be done either. And so, to shortly answer, as far as I can tell, it would not be wrong. This is a matter left for the judgment and the decision of, of our elders who lead us. Question number four. Another very good question having to do with the Christ. The question reads as follows. Jesus began His ministry at about 30 years of age. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist before His ministry began. Is it known the approximate age of Jesus when He was baptized? Isn't that a good question? Do we know how old Jesus was when He was baptized? Would you be turning to Luke chapter 3? We'll at least give some thought to the events recorded about the midway point of that chapter, actually. Luke chapter 3. As you're making ready for that, let me draw a few things to your consideration near the top of that slide. The person who wrote that made an excellent observation that Jesus Himself came to the Jordan River with the express intent to be baptized by John the Baptist. You and I might take note, he didn't come to the river to fish, and then it just so happened John was there. He came to the river for the express purpose, according to Matthew 3, verses 13 and following, to be baptized. No wonder then those particular statements that you'll see at the top of that slide are worthy of consideration. But isn't it interesting that the very next element... Revealed to us is this, He was then immediately tempted of Satan. The picture put before us is this, Jesus came to the Jordan and was baptized of John, and then immediately He was driven into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And we recollect that those temptations were, of course, very strong and directed to the point. But it does turn out that that observation will be meaningful as we look at the next element on that slide. As you look at Matthew and Mark and Luke, and their presentation of this, the chronology, develops in the following way. Matthew and Luke describe the Lord's public ministry as beginning right after this time. To say that again, right after this event of the temptation... And remember, the baptism was basically at that same time, right after that, the public ministry began. All of that leads us to appreciate this. It would then follow, based on that chronology, that the Lord's baptism occurred very, very shortly before, not very long at all before the nature of the public teaching and its beginning. In other words, they were very close together in time. At the bottom, then, the conclusion appears to be this... In Luke chapter 3, verse number 23, the text reads like this, And Jesus Himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. And then it proceeds to give His genealogy. But you'll notice it says He was about 30 years old. Now, that was of course at the moment, if you look back to verses 21 and 22, that was the description of His baptism. And that, of course, relates also to the time when the public ministry began. And so to put it together, the baptism, His baptism, as well as the beginning of the public ministry, all when He was about 30 years of age. Now, maybe at the bottom, you might recollect an Old Testament prophecy that seemingly had a bearing on this. It's in Daniel, the ninth chapter. And there, a very interesting development in which Daniel was given a vision involving 70 weeks. Now, that was a prophetical reference in that. Each one of those, of course, represented an actual year. So, 70 weeks of 7 days would be 490 days. With each one symbolically representative of a year, that was a span of 490 years. You and I are somewhat excited when we appreciate that matches perfectly with the understanding of what happened chronologically in the years following it. I've summarized it extraordinarily briefly. Remember, that period of 70 weeks was split into sections. There was a 7-week period, then a 62-week period, and then a 1-week period. 62 plus 1 plus the 7 adding up to 70. You might take note, the first part of that was related to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's what God told Daniel. But then he noted, as you consider the next part, 69 would be the sum of 7 and 62. 69 times 7 is exactly 483. When you add 483 to the time that Ezra led that expedition back, and that's when God said, you need to start the counting. You get to 26 AD. That's the very year Jesus was baptized. That's the very year the public ministry began. It matches the prophecy that had been revealed to Daniel hundreds of years earlier in time. The things concerning the activities of the Lord's ministry worked perfectly in beautiful harmony with it. No wonder then we close the slide by noting Those pieces, again, it seems, were a part of God's infinite plan. Jesus didn't come into the world just by accident at some interesting arbitrary time. He was born exactly when He was supposed to be. The public ministry started exactly when it was supposed to, and He died at the cross exactly when that was supposed to happen. Our God overrules the things in history, doesn't He? He knows exactly what's going to take place. It is in all of that light. We close that fourth question and come to question number five. This question in some way related to a part of the lesson this morning, interestingly enough, at least taken out of that same text. The question reads like this. In Luke 16, we read about the rich man and Lazarus. At death, angels met Lazarus and took him to Abraham's bosom. Luke 22, uh, sorry, Luke 16, verse 22. The rich man also died and was buried. Who, if anyone, meets sinners at death to take them to torment? Isn't that an interesting question? We can easily see the point. The text says that angels carried Lazarus to that place of comfort but the text doesn't say who carried the rich man to the place of torment, and that's the thrust of the person's question. Let's develop it like this. If I might ask you to again notice the wording in Luke chapter 16, it says in verse number 22, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried." And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments. We can immediately see that though it's true, the body of the rich man was buried, it's clear. It says he lift up his eyes in torment. So his spirit was elsewhere, just as we noted this morning. And so surely there was some conveyance, some means whereby the transition took place between where his body was buried and where, of course, he lifted up his eyes in torment. Perhaps that leads us to note the next, the next thought, the next idea. The answer is not given in the Bible. Now, I know that doesn't help answer the person's question much, but let me at least offer a few thoughts. I'm always hesitant to, to simply assert what would appear to be the most likely, because just because something's likely to you or me, or even plausible, doesn't mean that's the way God would choose to do it. His ways are far above ours, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and following. But let me offer you at least this thought. It does say that angels carried Lazarus' spirit to the place of comfort, to that place of paradise, to that place of Abraham's bosom. It does not say that the angels took part in carrying the rich man. But could you look back to Luke thirteen, or rather Matthew 13 with me? It would seem to me that there's at least some things to be noted about that chapter as it might have a bearing on our appreciation of this one. Matthew chapter 13. That chapter is known as the parable chapter of the New Testament in some ways because seven parables are revealed in that one chapter. And yet when we come to appreciate one of them, it's one that you're very familiar with. As you begin reading in verse number 24, it reads like this. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed at his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together unto the harvest. And in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now that was the parable. And we are eternally blessed because the Lord gave the the explanation. Would you jump down to verse number 36? Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went went into the house, and His disciples came unto Him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. So the disciples came to Him and said, Lord, tell us what that parable means. And this is what Jesus said. He answered and said unto them, He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who hath ears to hear. Let him hear. Now there is certainly at least some connection. Now admittedly this is at the end of time. That's what Jesus said. But there it shall be angels that not only will make conveyance of the righteous to that sweet barn of heaven, But you notice it also said angels will carry the wicked ones and in fact shall aid to cast them into a place, verse number 42, that is the furnace with wailing and punishment. So although that text in Luke 16 doesn't say that it was angels, certainly it would not be outside the realm of possibility to think that God could commission certain angels and in fact, could give them an instruction that you convey this wicked one because that's after all what they're going to be doing to some extent when the end of time comes as well. Again, may I say the text does not say that. That's only a conclusion based on Matthew 13 in conjunction with what Jesus explicitly said that certain angels are going to do. And with that, we close that particular slide. And we also close our questions for the night tonight. Now as we've looked at these questions one by one, five of them have been our case and we've been encouraged to give thought to the Word of God. There are some other questions that have already been presented and they're going to be the topic of that next question and answer session, hopefully coming really, really soon. But as always, if you have questions, it doesn't hurt to ask them, The best I may be able to say is, I don't know. But at least we can give some thought to what the Word of God perhaps has to say about things that are of interest to us, things that we can utilize to help us live as we should before God. As always, though, we would like to issue a statement of invitation. This is a convenient time. It is a time when we as a congregation are assembled, and if there's some way we can be of help to somebody, Maybe praying for a child of God just by way of strength. It may just be you know there's challenges coming to you perhaps in the coming days and you just want the strength and encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ. We'd be delighted to pray for you and with you. Maybe there's someone who has an error in your life and you'd like to come back to your first love and you want this group of people to know that you've repented and that you have made a change of course. We would love to encourage you, to wrap arms of support around you. Tonight, if we could be of help in any of these ways, we want to do that. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. If during that time we could specifically be of assistance to you, we hope that you'll feel comfortable and that you will feel that we could be of some encouragement to you and we'd love to do it. Why don't we try that? If it would be of capability right now while together we stand and while we sing.